Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. I'm just going to get set real quick. Uh, just going to turn off. The, there we go. All right. If you look on the screen, uh, this, this lesson that I'm doing today, I, I'm, uh, incorporating, I'm incorporating the special missions portion of it because I just came back from a uh, board meeting. I'm a, I sit on the board for the Baltic Nordic Mission Alliance. And we met uh, in Tacoma, Washington on Friday and Saturday last night. And it was just a time to gather all the churches from Alaska, uh, from Milwaukee, um, from the Antelope Valley, and, and really um, strategize about what to do and how to get the gospel to the nations that are foreign to us. Uh, nations like uh, Iceland, where there are, there are no disciples that, that we know of, no church that we know that's there that's making disciples. Um, places like Greenland, places like um, I mean, uh, Norway and, and Sweden, they only have one church in the whole country. Um, from Lithuania to Latvia to, 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 uh, to Estonia, these countries have very few disciples. And so we're strategizing in how to accomplish God's will. So special missions, if you're wondering, it's a goodwill monetary offering to support our churches in foreign nations. And tonight, I want to present to you something that you may have never thought of before. Maybe you've studied it, but we're going to look at a topic in the Bible that maybe you may find very surprising and very startling and very upsetting, but it's there. Um, this study is topical, so we're going to look at the Old Testament, we're going to look at the New Testament, and look and, re and reveal to us, and hopefully we can glean this epic story of God and humanity. When we read the Bible, we must read it in the context that it was written in. In other words, the Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. We, there's, a lot, there's a lot of timeless principles for us to learn, but it wasn't written to us. What I mean is the message transcends culture, but the form of the Bible is culture-bound. We take our place and sit at the feet of the authors and the Holy Spirit of the Bible. So, to look at it a better way, that God didn't zap the authors and they, they wrote and they typed and they woke up two hours later going, what did I write? That's not how the Bible was written. The Bible was written with God and authors working together, compiling information and putting together through God's Holy Spirit what we read today. God and humans. In the ancient context, so I want you to put your mind and not think of your 21st century context. I want you to put your mind as an ancient Israelite. And God decides to communicate to us and them through particular humans, through a particular language, through a particular culture, through a particular time and place. And if we're going to get to God's message, we have to look at the Bible through their eyes. And the ancient eyes... When an ancient Israel looked up into the sky and saw the stars, your context is you see gas balls and you see science and you see telescopes. When they looked into the sky, 
the authors were able to write and reveal to the humans that God had a spiritual family that He created. And those stars reflect spiritual beings who point to the greatest, greatest God of all. We know Him as Yahweh, our God. So when the ancient looked up, they didn't see gas balls. They saw these moving celestial bodies. And the authors reminded them that there are spiritual beings that live in the spiritual realm. Let's take a look at the next slide. This is the story of God's unconquerable love. It started in Genesis where God made the very first humans. Before God made humans, before God made the earth, God made spiritual beings. In Job 38, we see them rejoicing when earth was made. They're excited that God created an earth and He made man in His image. And in that garden of Eden, there was both human beings and spiritual beings together. It was God's spiritual family and it was God's human family living together. That was the design. That's going to be the design when the end comes. God's human family become divine and God's spiritual family living together. But something was amiss. Some beings in God's family, spiritual family, did not want mankind. Did not like creation. Did not like them. And we were introduced to the, the, to the little snake called the serpent. In the Bible, that word is nakash. And the, the author, you, why he uses that word is very important because he doesn't use the regular word for serpent. He uses the word that has three meanings. Nakash means, as a noun, it means a serpent. As an adjective, it means a shining one, which points to the spiritual being. And the thirdly, as a, as a verb, it means one who, part, who, uh, who gives knowledge. So the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. And Adam's sin brings death. This is why you buried your grandparents. This is why some of you have buried your mom and your dad and your uncles. Because what happened in the garden still affects us today. Because what happened there affects us today. And so God shoes the, shoes the humans out of the garden. They're no longer in His presence and they will die. For the Nakash, the serpent, he wanted to be high. God sends them, the Bible says, refers to them as below the earth. That's not its actual location, but that was their context. You know, uh, the underworld is down there. We, if we dig, we would say you're going to make it to China. No, the, in their world, it's down there. It's another world that all the dead go to, and the serpent becomes the Lord of the dead, nicknamed Lord of the Flies. And then, God starts after the flood, a new family. And he tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply. He goes, Noah and your sons, I want you to spread out along the earth because I made the earth for humans. Spread out and maintain it. Spread out and take care of it. Go. And so Noah's and his family, they have many sons and daughters. And the humans are co-working. And instead of gathering, instead of spreading out, they gather. They gather and they build themselves a city called Babylon. 
And within that city, they build a tower called the Tower of Babel. We know it very familiar, but what's the real meaning? What really happened at the Tower of Babel? What really happened when the humans were told to spread out, and yet they decided to come together? They rebelled against God. They did not want to go throughout the earth. They said, we're going to make ourselves a tower, which in the ancient context is a temple. And in that temple, that's where they served the God. That's where the gods would come down. And they were asking God to come down into the temple and say, we're going to worship you here. We're not going to spread out through the earth. We're not going to do what you told us. And so God decides to do something. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over, over the face of the earth. God comes down and sees the rebellion. The direction was to spread out, and they decide to come in. And it's at this point that God scatters them through geography and language. And what the Bible does, as we're going to see, the Bible has hyperlinks. They hyperlink things that are in Genesis to other books. So when you read another book, it'll hyperlink back to Genesis. And so God says, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to give you a new language and nations will be, will, will be birthed. Because in Deuteronomy 32, here is the hyperlink. Moses is taking the second generation of the Israelites into the promised land. The first generation didn't want to go. They looked over the hills. They saw all these giants and says, we ain't going down there. And so God says, hey, go down there. It's like, we ain't going down there. So God says, okay, I want you to walk around 40 years in the desert. You're going to die off. And then your sons and daughters will go in there. And so before their sons and daughters go in there, Moses gives them a recap of history. And he says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is His inheritance. These two verses tell us that one of the judgments at the Tower of Babel, when God divided mankind through language and geography, Because up until that point, God was the God of everyone. After Babel, God changes that. God's, I, God says, I'm going to hand these nations over to my spiritual family. The Bible refers to them as sons of God. The Bible refers to them as rulers and authorities and powers. They're created spiritual beings. But I'm going to start new. And I'm going to make a new nation. I'm going to find someone 
and I'm going to create an entire nation. Because in God's mind, He has to fix what happened in the Garden of Eden. It's still on His mind because right now humanity is facing death and He has to fix that. And so, the Tower of Babel, God disinherits the other nations because of their rebellion. And He chooses to create a new family. And out of this new family, He looks for an old couple within the population and He visits a guy named Abram. And he says, Abram, I want to be your God. What do you think? And, he, and Abraham goes, I'm in. Because of Abram's decision to believe God's promise, God tells him this. I will bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And look at what he says. And all people on the earth will be blessed through you. At this point in time, he is no longer the God of all the nations. He is now, when you read your Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. If you ever notice that, he's never the God of the Amorites. He's never the God of the Jebusites. Because he assigned those nations to his spiritual family to govern on his behalf. He is the God of Israel. So things look great. The other nations have, have their spiritual uh, beings governing them. God has Israel. Things couldn't be more better. This is a story about love. God loves to put things in order. And he has the nations. He has a spiritual family helping them. They're going to help co-rule the nations because that's how God operates. He gave man co-rulership of the earth. And he gives his spiritual beings co-rulership of the heavens. That's how God, he doesn't have to, he wants to. But something happens. Along the way, not just the Garden of Eden. Because if you were to ask somebody in the ancient Israelite, why is man always messed up? They wouldn't just say the Garden of Eden. They'd also tell you the Tower of Babel. They'd also tell you this story. That the sons of God, who were told to govern God's people, the nations, for him, rebelled. And in Psalm 82, God gathers them together for a meeting. And it says, God presides in the great assembly. That means council. That means congregation. In the Greek, that word is translated ekklesia. He renders judgment among the gods. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? You were supposed to defend the weak. You were supposed to defend the fatherless. You were supposed to uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. You were supposed to rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You were supposed to be hope worldwide. And you weren't. And they were wicked. And they were dark. And they were corrupted. And they, and they deceived the nations into worshiping them and not God. They wanted to be God. And so God renders the judgment. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. And all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High. 
all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. God renders judgment on the rebellious sons of God in the supernatural world that we don't see, but we feel their influence on us. They're the gods of money, power, sex, and violence. No matter where you look in our culture, you see their influence. A couple things I want to point out. The judgment of the sons of God, it's not immediate. God actually deals with them later. And their punishment is they become mortal. They will die like humans. Another point I want to make out is that God wants to be the God of all the nations now. He wants to take back what he gave them. But they are not going to give it back. They don't want God to have it back. And that gives you the backdrop into the Old Testament. It is God versus the gods of Egypt. It's, versus, it's God versus the God of the Canaanites. It's the backdrop to the entire Old Testament. And God wants all the nations back. And there's a spiritual war. Some of the words you'll see in your Bible are words like these, sons of God. In their context, it depends if they're good or bad. In Job 38, they were good. In Genesis 6, they were bad. Watchers in Daniel 4, they were good. Hosts of heaven, mm, you know, good, sometimes bad. God has a divine counsel. He works with his spiritual family. In Psalm 82 and other passages in 1 Kings 22. Rulers or princes. In Daniel chapter 10, when you read that chapter, the archangel Michael's coming to the human prophet Daniel. And he gets there and goes, Daniel, I'm so sorry. I would have got here 21 days ago, but I got held up by the prince of Persia. Who in the world is a prince of Persia? Because in the ancient mind, these sons of gods were territorial. They ruled different sections and geography of the earth. Let me give you an example. In 2 Kings chapter 5, it's a famous story of a commander of Syria who has leprosy. And we use it all the time for baptism. Go on the river and baptize seven times. And he goes in and he goes back to Elisha. And he offers Elisha gifts. And Elisha goes, I want nothing. He's like, are you sure? Nothing. And he goes, Elisha, can I take the dirt and fill my donkeys full of the dirt? And you're reading that. Why is a commander filling his satchels with dirt? Because in his mind, he's standing on the land of the God of Israel. And he goes, Elisha, I have to go back to my land where there's another God called Rimon. And I have to go work, but I don't want to worship him. I want to worship God. So can I take the dirt? Because when I get the dirt, when I get home, when I travel home, I want to put the dirt on the ground and I want to stand on it because I'm standing on the land of Israel. And I want to worship the God of Israel. That's why I take the dirt. Because in their mind, there's a God of Oxnard, there's a God of Camarillo, there's a God of Bethlehem, and there's a God of Travel to the other cities. There's another God there. But I don't want to worship him. I want to worship your God. So when we look at these words, they're territorial in nature. They're geographically bound. That is how the ancient Israelites viewed their world. We don't view our world this way. 
Our world is materialism. We've long forgotten about these gods, but their influence is there, and the reality of them existing is real. And I'm going to show you why. God is on the, God is on the march to reclaim the nations. You know, when I started this study, I started thinking, what a mess! Why in the world would God make these things in that... To me, I would just start over. But before God decided to make a spiritual being, before God decided to make a human being, he knew that rebellion was baked into the process. God already knew the rebellion would happen. It was already baked into the decision to make it because God wants all of us to have a choice to be his image on earth. He cannot make us without having the own decision, the own free will to make it. Reminds me of a story of the X-Files. If you guys ever watched that when you were growing up. If you remember Mulder and Scully. Mulder, in one episode, finds a genie. And he says, and the genie goes, you get a wish. And he goes, I know, I know what I want. I got it. He like, hold on, take your time, think about it. He's like, no, no, I know what I want. I know what I want. He's like, slow it down. Think through this. He goes, I got it. I want peace on earth. And Jean goes, that's it? She's like, really? Okay, done. And Mulder walks outside. And everyone's gone. (laughs) There's nobody there. Free will means free will. And getting rid of evil means getting rid of you. God had rebellion baked into the plan from the very start. It's kind of like when you have kids. You don't want to think about it, but if you're honest, you're like, they're going to rebel. But I'm going to have them anyway. They're going to be be mean. I'm going to have a kid anyway. They're going to be disrespectful. I'm going to have it anyway. It's baked into your process. We're God's kids. We're going to rebel. He goes, okay. So God wants everyone back. And it's a mess. So God's plan was, hey, I'm going to come down and deal with two things. I got to fix the problem of death and i got to deal with the spiritual sons of God who are harassing the humans. If there was ever a scripture that had music attached to it, this would be a great one. You know what, you know what, you know what lyrics I would sing to this verse? Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no valley low. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me away from you. Because he comes down in the flesh. God makes his entrance to do two things. One, to redeem us from, the, some, from certain death. And two, to rescue us from the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. And so he, we know that he comes and we know that he dies, as Steve taught us. He dies, he's beaten, he's bloodied, he takes it. But you ask yourself, If these spiritual sons of God, why would they do that? Why would they kill Jesus knowing it would seal their fate? 
Why would they kill Jesus knowing it would redeem mankind? The answer is they didn't know. Because if they did know, they wouldn't have done it. They're not stupid. They're intelligent. They're powerful. They're supernatural. And as Paul writes, he says that the, the wisdom of this age, of the rulers of this age, are coming to nothing. Hyperlink Psalm 82. No, no, we declare that God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they'd have not crucified the Lord of glory. Look at the language. Verse 7, it's hidden. It was a mystery. These sons of God had no idea what Jesus was doing on the earth. The only thing an intellectual person would deduce was Jesus is starting the Garden of Eden again. God and humans again? Oh no, we, we don't like that plan. Let's get rid of them. And when they get rid of Jesus, two things get accomplished. One, death is overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Our, 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 our legal indebtedness, which stood against us, has been forgiven. He cancels the charge. Two, he disarms the powers and the authorities. That's the language of the sons of God. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Sins forgiven, eternal life given, he disarms the powers and the authorities. They had no idea that killing Jesus would seal their fate. So God takes away their authority over the nations. But you know what? They're still there. God legally and spiritually takes away their authority, but they're still there. This is why Jesus says this. He gathers his 12 after he resurrects. And notice the language. All authority in heaven, it's a given, and on earth have been given to me. He disarmed their authority and he took it from them and says, now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. These authorities and rulers have been disarmed of their authority and Jesus has it. But how do we protect ourselves? Because they're still there. What can we do as disciples? Put on the full armor of God, Paul says. Notice the language he uses. Take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He's saying, this isn't a human thing. This is a spiritual thing against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. He says, ruck up and put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, 
you may be able to take your stand. And then Paul describes this amazing helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth. The sword is the word of God. Feet fitted with readiness. Shield of faith that extinguishes the arrows. Prayer. That's why Paul writes in, in, in Romans 8 that there is no demon or angel past or present or any powers will take away and separate you from the love of God. Because the one thing that the authorities and rulers fear the most is the kingdom of God advancing. That is what they fear the most. But when is, when is Jesus going to deal with the sons of God? Because they're still there and he gave us wise words to protect ourselves from them. But what's going to happen to them? How is this going to end? When Jesus comes back. In verse 24, the end will come and when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power, human and spiritual, he gives God the kingdom. And they die like mortal men. In the second coming of Jesus.